Last week we talked about feelings, second foundation of mindfulness. You know, we spent the kind of six weeks before that really talking about what it is to be embodied and how important it is to bring awareness to the fact of our physicality and being embodied beings and how breathing works with that. And then last week we switched over to feelings. And last week we talked about the beginning part of how the Buddha defines feelings. So just to get us on the same page, you know, in the Buddha's time, the term feelings, at least the way he was using it, refers to positive, negative, and neutral sensations on the body or in the body as a result of sense door contact. So it's not emotions, which are more complex, like uh, happiness and sadness and hatred and greed, these kind of things. The feelings are just basic, primitive, primal responses to sensations. This is where we get our deep routines, our deep uh, prejudices, our deep biases. These are the seeds of more complex emotions. So anytime there's sense door contact, so a sound wave hits the eardrum or light hits the eye, we have a sense of liking, disliking, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's a really basic primitive response. It's designed for our protection so we can act quickly if we're in danger. But that mechanism gone haywire starts to lead, lead to craving and grasping and clinging. And then you've got aversion, which leads to hatred and ill will and possibly violence and harm. So even though at its base, it's pretty innocuous, in the long run, these early seeds of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral sensations or feelings, as they're called, can really build to something that can either be harmful or blameless, as the Buddha described. So it's really important to learn how to be mindful of feelings and then to understand at a deeper level how it can be helpful for our reactive behavior patterns and how we can cultivate compassion and goodwill out of them and how we can use mindfulness to see some of the biases we have that lie underneath consciousness. And there's been tons of articles, especially in the last five years, about how modern research, and especially in neuroscience and happiness studies, is beginning to show that even though we are rational beings, a lot of the times our rational thinking is just resting on top of our biases. We're basically rationalizing what we already feel. And so the feeling comes up, it's pleasant, unpleasant, we like it, we want it, we desire it, we want to covet it, and then we create a rationalization for why we need it. So for example, I come to you today having completely gotten triggered <laughs> by a sale on Amazon and today I ended up doing this impulse buy and I completely rationalized it uh, right before I started working again on the Dharma talk and there was this sale on a crock pot and I had to have it because the crock pot I have wasn't working very well. That was my rationalization. But probably the reason I bought it was because it's all digital and it's like it's newer and it's shiny and there was a little button that said buy now and all I had to do was hit it. And so my rationalization is my crockpot is old, but probably the commercial for it hit down on something that was liking, grasping, and then I ended up clinging to the concept of having it and now it's on the way to my house. So this is why we need to be aware of feelings because before you know it, You've done something and you're thinking, do I really need to have that? Maybe, maybe not. So feelings are really important. It's a deep part of consciousness. And without wakefulness and mindfulness, we can go on autopilot. And being able to be aware of feelings can really bypass the mechanism of that autopilot so we can have more autonomy and make sure that we're acting skillfully and not just on impulse and doing things that are beyond our awareness. Right. And that's where the harm comes in is that it's out of awareness. So we act or react and we don't know what's happening. So that's what we talked about last week. And we're going to go into a deeper level of this this week. Another aspect of feelings is that the Buddha described two basic categories, worldly feelings and unworldly feelings. It's kind of a maybe an anachronistic kind of um, wording. It's not something I don't think we would use very often in terms of feelings, but once I start talking about it, you'll understand. So we have worldly and unworldly feelings. And this cat, these two categories are hugely important when it comes to awakening 
and when it comes to dukkha, when it comes to suffering. So I want to talk a little bit about, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you just a little bit of context for how important this insight was for the Buddha, because I think it's important to see that this category of worldly and unworldly feelings was actually a huge discovery for the Buddha, and it was a turning point in his own practice. So it's not just a part of the Eightfold Path. It was the turning point in his own practice that allowed him to discover something new that wasn't being practiced at the time. So I'm going to give you just a little reminder, a little crash course on the Buddha's journey so you can see what he was practicing when he discovered these worldly and unworldly feelings and how it can benefit you and I as we make our own spiritual journey. So you've probably heard me talk about the Buddha's journey and other Dharma talks, so I'll just kind of do an overview. But what's important, I think, about the history of the Buddha's journey is that at the time of the Buddha, it wasn't like the Buddha got on the scene and like invented spirituality, right? He wasn't, he didn't invent meditation. There were, yoga was already around in India at the time. You've got hundreds and hundreds of years of spiritual development in India long before the Buddha strolls in with what he eventually calls the Eightfold Path. So the Buddha did not invent any of that stuff, right? The Buddha would have practiced yoga. Uh, Non-dual teachings were alive and well in India for hundreds of years before the Buddha came around. There were plenty of teachings at the time of the Buddha that talked about love and compassion being um, pathways to liberation. There were some uh, people who said that happiness wasn't possible and that it was useless to engage in spiritual practice because you were either going to be happy and free or you won't. And that had nothing to do with your actions. You were just going to be free or not be free. And then there were, uh, there were pa not paths, but there were beliefs at the time that happiness wasn't possible, not in this lifetime, in the material plane, so to speak. So there were all kinds of different views, all kinds of different practices. And the Buddha comes into his life inheriting all of these different views and all of these different teachings and trainings that are already around. Wandering ascetics, right, those who left home to go out in pursuit of awakening, that was a very common phenomenon at the time of the Buddha. So again, the Buddha's journey wasn't unique in that way. People were leaving home, going off into the forest, finding gurus, finding teachers, finding yogis, and studying with them in the hopes of getting awakening and liberation. And also hoping, hoping that, that the liberation that their guru was talking about was the right path. So this was something that was going on culturally at the time in India and something the Buddha took part in. So the story goes, historically, so the story goes, the Buddha studied with numerous prominent teachers of his time, particularly the yogis. And after studying for quite a few years, one of the yoga teachers he was studying with said that the Buddha had completed his training and was enlightened. The Buddha's response was, Kind of like, I don't know what his actual response was. It was kind of like, well, I don't feel enlightened. So he didn't really feel that he had gotten the enlightenment he was seeking, even though the teacher he was working with said, you know, you're ready to teach. You're ready to go. This is the end of the path. And the Buddha did not feel like he was getting the awakening that he was seeking. And so that's really important to know that similar to all of us, who have gone out and sought out teachers and Dharma talks and go on retreats and, you know, we're on Dharma Seed and Insight Meditation Centers and all of this, we are doing a similar thing in that we're going out and trying to find wisdom and we're practicing and hoping somebody can guide us through what they have already done and that the awakening of our teachers and our fellow meditators is something that we're going to be able to reenact and take part in. So we do this kind of mimicking of the Buddha's journey in our own spiritual practice. The Buddha left these yoga traditions and eventually started taking part in self-mortification practices. So we're talking austerities, where the Buddha would harm himself in an effort to purify bad karma. So there were a bunch of ascetics who thought that when you harm yourself, the pain that you experience in the present moment was actually representative of something bad you did in the past. So that if you hurt yourself in the present and experience pain, 
that was a moment where you were purifying and eliminating your bad karma, right? And so the whole idea was to see how much pain you could put yourself through. Now, in these traditions, people would die, right? And dying was considered to be a noble pursuit within these self-mortification practices. So you would starve yourself, you would go out in extreme weather, you would not sleep, and then there was self-harming practices. So the Buddha was practicing these, thinking that this might be the answer to his awakening. And after a while, so the story goes, he almost killed himself, he almost died, almost starved to death, and decided at that point that something wasn't working, right? He had tried a bunch of practices, these practices weren't working, and so he was getting frustrated. And there's this quote I want to read you about the Buddha's insight. Okay, so this is from the Sadi, uh, not the Satipatthana, this is from the Pali Suttas. And it is a famous passage where the Buddha comes to terms with the fact that the self-deprecation, the mortification, and austerities are not doing him any good. And he's trying to contemplate what has he left out? Is there another path that can lead to his long-term happiness and well-being? So this is the way the passage goes. I thought... Whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past, present, or future have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. But by this racking practice of austerities, I have not attained any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to enlightenment? I considered... I recall that when my father, the Sakyan, was occupied while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first absorption, which is the jhana, which accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Could that be the path to enlightenment? Then following on that memory came this realization. That is the path to enlightenment. I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I should not be afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. Sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. So what happens here, the Buddha has this insight. He's been doing self-mortification practices and turning away from pleasure because pleasure was seen as not possibly a path to happiness, right? This was a negative type of practice. And so his insight is, I need to turn this around. I need to go back and find out, is it possible that having pleasure might actually lead to happiness as long as the pleasure is wholesome? as long as the pleasure is not rooted in sensual desires and unwholesome states, greed, hatred, delusion. These are the unwholesome states. So that is the turning point that the Buddha has in his practice where he begins to look at pleasure is not something that's negative in his practice, but something that in fact can be part of the path to liberation. And what's interesting, and I mentioned this last week, was that the Buddhists of the time were known for being really jolly, happy, delightful people, right? And so I wanted to read this other quote. This comes from, uh, let's see, this is one of the kings who visited the bhikkhus at their, it wouldn't have been a monastery, it just would have been where they were staying. This is from King Pasenadi, if I'm pronouncing that right. I love this quote. So this is the, the quote. But here I see bhikkhus smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with mind, aloof as a wild deer's. But here I see bhikkhus smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with mind aloof as a wild deer's. So we see here that there's a lot of pleasure in the path, right? The end of the path 
is a type of pleasure, right? It's a type of joy. It's a type of happiness. Now, I will admit, <laughs> all of those make sense to me. I'm not quite sure about the aloof as a wild deer, the mind of a wild deer. So I don't know about the, the minds of wild deer. And so when I read this earlier today, I've never seen this part of the quote. I immediately thought of like, I mean, do you stumble on a monk who's in the forest and then the monk kind of looks at you like a wild deer and kind of like prances away? Like, I wasn't quite sure like what the joy in the wild deer mind was, but I assure you, it seemed like it was something that was joyful and worth attaining. So if you're looking at wild deer mind, that might be something we can meditate on. But the point here is that pleasure is a part of the path, right? And that the Buddha had a huge insight that pleasure was a part of the journey and self-mortification and pain was not really cutting it. And I think it's just really important to remember that because at the time, this was a huge breakthrough, right? This changes a lot of different thought in India at the time. So what we see is that in our case, or I should say what the Buddha basically says, if you listen to the quote, is that the pleasure that got him to liberation was pleasure that's not rooted in sense, sense contact, right? It's not sensual pleasure. It's a different kind of pleasure that he calls unworldly pleasures. So we have the worldly pleasures and unworldly pleasures. And so I'm going to talk today about these unworldly pleasures because it was a huge insight for the Buddha. And it can be, I know it was for me as well in my practice, really beginning to understand what kind of pleasure we can cultivate in our spiritual practice that can lead to a deeper sense of long-term happiness and satiation. So this is why this is so important. I'll remind you of one other thing that we've I've talked about quite a bit in Dharma Talks, just to remember that this happiness that I just described of the cheerfulness and the joy and the delight of the Buddhist community, the happiness that they were experiencing always has three qualities for it to be true happiness. One, it has to be long-term and sustainable. It has to be satiating. It's not momentary pleasure or affect that we usually get from like a movie or eating good food or having a cookie or something like that, right? This is a type of sustained contentment it's also considered to be a type of happiness that doesn't harm. So if you're feeling joyful and running around with the mind of a deer, so to speak, but you're harming people in the process, not true happiness, not authentic happiness. So it has to be blameless, as the Buddha says. It has to be non-harming. You can't be harming yourself or hurting somebody else in the community. That is not a part of the jam. And so it's really important to know that that's implicit in the Buddha's discussion of happiness. The other part about it that's really helpful is that, and this could be in one sense one of the most important aspects of this happiness, is that it's not dependent on outside circumstances. It's not dependent on outside circumstances. This is a type of happiness that you can have no matter what is going on in your life. It's a type of ease and well-being and contentment that transcends circumstances. So you don't have to hope the weather's going to be good or that person in your life that you care about is going to be present, or that there's a circumstance or money or education or anything that's going on that would have to be present for this particular type of joy. This is an internal state generated from inside. So that's important to know when we talk about happiness. So let's talk about worldly feelings. I'm going to make the distinction between worldly sensations and unworldly sensations. So this is going to be obvious because we live in a world of worldly sensations, but I'm going to put it in a Dharma context. So worldly sensations, worldly happiness, you could translate it as worldly happiness, is a result of sense door contact. So in the Buddhist tradition, we have the normal sense doors of eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Touch is also a sense door. And then mind. So fantasies that give us pleasure, dreams, thoughts things that pop into consciousness, that's also the mind is considered a sense door as well. So worldly sensations, worldly pleasures are just pleasures that have to operate with our sense doors. Good food, great music, human contact, right? This is the sex, drugs, music, social media, 
element of reality, right? This is the senses that we as human beings being embodied are familiar with. And just to put this into a really strong cultural context, at least in North America, and I know in much of Western culture, not as much in Europe, but very much in North America, we spend a lot of our time acquiring experiences and acquiring sense pleasures. And in our culture, we're often told that's what it means to live a good life. That life is as good as the experiences and sensations that we're acquiring, whether it be a vacation to Hawaii or a new iPod or a new crockpot or whatever. We're told that the good life is in the acquiring of experience and sensations that stimulate and titillate us all the time. And that's what it means to be human. And we are really involved in a culture that really promotes overstimulation. The more stimulation you have, the better off you are, the happier you're going to be. So it's not just that we have these worldly sensations. We also happen to be in a culture that really values collecting and consuming as much sensory input as possible. And these days when there's so much digital media, we have the opportunity to overstimulate big time. Right. We have the ability to like be texting and watching TV at the same time and those kind of things. So sense pleasures are the pleasures you're all familiar with. It's what we usually strive for in life. And we are told that it creates happiness. Now, it's important to know that the Buddha didn't say that worldly pleasures were bad in and of themselves. Right. He didn't say pleasure bad go practice meditation. So I wanted to make that clear. He doesn't look at sense pleasures and just say, you got to give these all up because if you don't give them up, you're not going to get enlightened. That's not how the Buddha operated. He did acknowledge sense pleasures. You can grow from them. You can learn from them. You can connect with other people in the midst of our sense pleasures, right? They're not bad in and of themselves. The way that these sense pleasures hold us back is in their limitations, right? In their limitations. <laughs> this reminds me of, um, I'm going to backstep just one here. When Goenkaji, before Goenkaji passed away, he did a world tour and he came to the U.S. and um, Molly and I went and saw him at UCLA, you know, the, um, the college. And so there's this big audience of scholars and, you know, famous Buddhists and this whole, you know, the media and this whole hullabaloo and Goenka's on this big stage and they had people write questions down on paper and then he would pick the questions out that he thought were important and he'd read the question and he'd answer the question. And he was up on stage with his wife, Mataji, and he draws a question out and the question is, what's wrong with sex? And Kowinka, who at the time had to have been, I don't know, 80-something, has this big smile and says, nothing's wrong with sex. And then he turns and smiles at his wife, and the entire audience just loses their minds. And Gawinkaji and his wife and everyone in the room are just howling at his response that there's nothing wrong with sex. Because Gawinka was not a, a monk. He, had, he was married, he had kids and grandkids and... So I always think about when I think about that, when I think of this worldly and unworldly pleasures, right? So it's not that they're bad in and of themselves, right? It's what happens in the way we relate to them. So let me show you what the Buddha saw in worldly pleasures. That is the drawback and the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering. So one thing is, is that sense pleasures are stimulating, but they're not satisfying. They're stimulating, great, but they're not satisfying. And I always like to think of it like this. Have you ever listened to a song that was so satisfying that you never had to listen to music again? Or did it make you want to listen to more music? Have you ever had an experience, like you watched a movie and you thought, oh my gosh, that movie watching experience was so deeply satiating, that's the last movie I'm ever going to watch. We don't live in a world where our sense pleasures are satiating. It leaves us with a sense of wanting more. 
right? It's not one movie. It's an entire season of something, right? It's not one song. It's song after song, album after album. We consume sense pleasures without a feeling of being content. Same with like, uh, say, outdoor activities, hiking, biking, kayaking, right? Pacific Northwest, all kinds of outdoors activity, outdoor activities. Have you ever known anyone who went on a hike that was so satisfying that they never went on a hike again? Or did they have to go on a different hike up a different mountain with a different waterfall with different trees? Because it's not satiating, right? And we don't think of it that way. We just think, well, life is just a series of sense pleasures. And I'm going to go hiking today. And in two weeks, I'll go hiking again. The Buddha saw it as something very peculiar that our sensory stimulation wasn't very satisfying. It didn't lead to contentment. So that is part of the dukkha. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong. It's just that they don't lead to long-term happiness and well-being because they can't be satisfied. They can't bring that to the experience. Again, another drawback of sensory stimulation, these worldly feelings, is that they're always dependent on outside circumstances. So if we put all our eggs in one basket and we put happiness in the worldly pleasures basket, what happens if we can't download the song, go on the hike, go on the vacation? What happens if our partner is unavailable, right? What if we can't go see the friend that provides the intimacy or we can't laugh at the joke, right? What if our main source of happiness is playing an instrument and then we no longer can play that instrument because of arthritis or aging or injury. We develop a life that's very much dependent on conditions. That's a drawback. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But if we don't have access to some other type of pleasure that's non-conditional and very satisfying, we're stuck being pushed and pulled between these conditioned realities. That is why the Buddha wanted to find a type of happiness that was satisfying and not conditional because he couldn't see himself ever being truly happy without some deeper sense of contentment. The last thing that the Buddha commented on was the fact that some pleasures really are harmful in and of themselves, right? Not to get down on cookies, but like I have a bucket of candy downstairs and I've already eaten way too much of it and I, did I eat any today? I didn't eat any today because I promised myself I wouldn't, but I almost ate some before the talk, but I didn't. So I'm still on track because I ate a ton of it yesterday. <laughs> so there's all these little Skittles packages all over the house because I can't stop. Like it's not satiating. A little thing of Skittles is not satisfying to this palate. It's great in the moment, but as soon as I'm done, like an hour later, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go get some more. It's not satisfying and probably all that sugar, not so great. So things like food, right? We can take in food, maybe not so healthy for us, harmful in and of itself if there's too much or the wrong kind. Drugs the same way, the Buddha mentions that. Of course, there's going to be people in his day who have issues with drug and addiction. It would have been there as well. So there are certain stimulations that definitely can hurt us. But the Buddha also mentions that... It's not the sensory stimulation in and of itself, but it's all of the time that we spend seeking out the pleasure, the planning, the fantasizing, buying the gear that we need to have the experience, right? All the hard work we do to get the money, to get the vacation, and then we get the vacation and it's not satisfying, it's not satiating. So the Buddha talked about one of the biggest dukkhas that we don't realize is all the time we spend fantasizing about the pleasure that we want next. Not even the pleasure itself, but the all the present moment time that I think in his terms we would say we waste or we get lost in fantasizing about the next pleasure. And so much life is lost in those moments. So he saw that as a real drawback from putting all our eggs in that basket. One of the things I notice in myself, and I know I can't be the only one who does this because this, this is a human thing, but I'll notice this, and this is where this truth really hits me really poignantly, right? I'll notice that I will be in an activity that I have planned 
that I have waited for, perhaps saved money for, I don't know, it could be anything like, let's say I go camping, I really like to go camping. So I've taken time off work, I've saved the money, I have the gear, and now I go camping. And in the middle of what I think is fully enjoying the camping experience, I'm reminiscing about other times I've gone camping, and I'm thinking, oh, next time I go camping, I wanna do this and this and this and this. I haven't even finished the trip, and I'm comparing it to previous camping trips and imagining future camping trips because it's just not satisfying. There isn't deep satiation in the experience. And how many times are we in an experience and we're thinking about other times we've done it or thinking about next time I wanna do it again. I was on the beach not too long ago. Same thing, I was thinking about other times I had been on the beach instead of being fully present with that beach moment. I was thinking, oh, I remember a time where it wasn't so warm and nice. So instead of being with the warm and nice weather, I'm comparing it to a beach trip I had like two years ago. So human beings have a hard time being present, satisfied and satiated with worldly pleasures. It's just the way we're built. It's just the way we're built. It's not a bad thing, it's just a drawback. So the suffering, the suffering is how we relate to and engage worldly pleasures. They're not bad in and of themselves, but we have to watch how they cause suffering. We have to look at the craving and the grasping and the clinging that we have to these sensations. Now, another aspect that the Buddha says is suffering is our dependence on the sensations, right? Our dependence on the sensations. We think that we're choosing to go sit down and watch a movie. We think that we're choosing freely to plan a trip or put on some headphones or scroll down on social media and check our email or look at Facebook or look at a tweet or something like that. But when you really look closely, what happens over time is we train the heart and mind to go after and reach for these sensations. And so even if we're not interested, the mind keeps grasping. The mind keeps reaching out for the newest, shiniest, brightest sense pleasure. I can give you an example in my own experience of mindfulness. I've done this, exper this experiment several times where I've done some media fasting, right? So one time I did it, I decided that I wasn't going to do any kind of music while driving to work. And it was like a 20 minute commute. So I would usually turn on a podcast or listen to some music or the news or something. <clears throat> and so I told myself I'm going to fast from that and I'm going to be mindful of driving and I'm going to use it as a 20 minute meditation. The first few weeks of doing this, I would be sitting there doing my kind of mindful sense door rotation. And then without thinking, my, my hand would reach out and turn on the radio. I didn't even want to turn on the radio. It was just I had programmed my mind to get more stimulation. And then sometimes I would start meditating and then I would get to work and I would notice the radio was on, but I did not remember turning it on because I had a habit of like boredom, turn on music in the morning. I had trained my mind to grasp for the radio even though my intention was to be mindful in the solace of the drive. Another example of this, which is very similar, when I was in grad school, uh, when I was in my addictions training for therapy, we were asked to give up something for a whole semester that we did often, give up a habit that we did frequently and really liked. Now, of course, I chose media again, and I decided not to watch any TV or go to the movies for the entire semester. And the same thing happened. I'd find myself reaching for the remote for the TV without even thinking about it, right? It's like, even though my intention was not to do that, I had programmed myself to desire desire. I had programmed my heart and mind to crave whenever there was silence to turn on the TV in the background or turn on some music. And then I totally blew it. And this is exactly, I swear, this is exactly how it happened. I literally woke up and found myself in a movie theater with my friend watching a movie. And in the middle of the movie, I realized that I had made the commitment not to see any kind of media. I had no memory of having made the decision. There was no conflict. My mind was like on autopilot. 
This is what the Buddha means by craving, craving or desiring desire. It's not just about the movie. It's about I've relinquished some of my autonomy by constantly stimulating myself and programming myself to need sensory stimulation at all times. And there's not only no satisfaction, ultimately, I don't have as much autonomy in that experience as I thought. It's huge awakening for me to really see how my habits are constantly craving more stimulation. We are not comfortable just being present and at ease with the moment to moment state of our heart and mind, which is why meditation is so challenging. So that is unworldly sensations. That is essentially the heart of unworldly sensations. The Buddha realized that unworldly sensations, though not a problem in and of themselves, cultivate a deep-seated dependence on outside circumstances for what we call happiness. And here in the West, we have really gone overboard in overstimulating ourselves and calling that the good life. Sensory stimulation and saturation of sense experiences is what we call happiness in the West. And as you can see, there's a lot of drawbacks from it. So the Buddha, in that passage where he says, oh, I realized that there is a type of pleasure and there is a type of happiness that is not built on unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome desires. Now, unwholesome is not as judgy as it sounds. Unwholesome just means that craving, that sense craving. So he realizes, oh, there's another form of pleasure. And so unworldly sensations or unworldly feelings are simply feelings that are generated from spiritual practice. Worldly sensations are sensations that are generated from the actual act of the meditation practice. It are the sensations that come from generating a heart that is grateful and generous. It is the sensations that come from generating loving kindness. It's the sensations or feelings that are generated from deep states of mindful concentration in the present moment, as we call the jhanas. It also comes from wisdom. The Buddha talks about how deep wisdom can be hugely satisfying, emotionally satiating and deeply satisfying. And so in the Buddha's, the beginning of the Buddha's journey, he was thinking pleasure wasn't going to be a part of enlightenment at all right? That there wasn't going to be pleasure. It was going to be something else. But his big insight is that no, pleasure and happiness are a significant part of the awakening. And joy and delight is a part of the jam. The challenge for us, though, we are so dependent on worldly feelings that it's hard for us to imagine there might be a happiness that's deeper, more satisfying, more joyous, and more delightful than what we're already experiencing. It's really hard for us to say, to even be convinced that living a life of less stimulation, a life of simplicity and deeper human connection would feel as exciting as we do when we're out at a concert or taking drugs or having sex or doing whatever might come next on our sensory agenda. We don't really believe it. And it's challenging as a meditator to trade up for this higher happiness, right? It's really challenging for us to do that because it's hard to have faith when, I mean, sensory stimulation is fun, right? To say that we want to trade up for something even deeper really takes a lot of faith. We have to kind of jump into our practice and see if that is true for us. And this is the challenge of meditation, looking at worldly and unworldly sensations. Now, as lay folk, right, as non-monastics, at the time of the Buddha, it is said that lay folk, just like ourselves, experience enlightenment. So that is kind of a given, right? And there's plenty of people who talk about that in the monastics who say, that's not an issue. Like, enlightenment is available to everybody. That being said, it is very difficult to walk that path when our mind is so much in a state of being bombarded by sense stimulation. We do have to tone it down in order to see these other sensations and to see the delight in the meditation practice itself and have a concentrated enough mind to be able to get deep joy and deep tranquility. 
So there is a giving up, a trading up, I like to say, because it's a better, I think it's a better word. Giving up always seems like deprivation or self-harm because it would be giving up if there wasn't a higher pleasure. It's a trading up because the Buddha basically says it is more pleasurable. And I like to think of it this way. I like to think of it this way. You never see someone who's really walked this path, right? Who's a monastic or someone really advanced in practice who's standing at the end of the path, waving you to go back, saying it was a mistake, right? You don't see like the Buddha saying, whoa, you don't, whatever you do, no more meditation, no more loving kindness. It's a, it's a dead end go back where you came from. Like you never see people who practice Vipassana over the course of their life saying, wow, that was a waste of time, right? Because over time it gives you a deeper satiation and a deeper happiness. So some of this we do have to take on faith, right? Someone tells us, look, if you keep practicing, joy will come, even though right now it's wandering mind and knee pain. But if we have that faith and we really walk the path, these otherworldly sensations will start to arise and we can cut back on the overly saturated worldly sensations that though pleasurable do not fulfill our desire for contentment. The Buddha talked about worldly sensations as junk food, right? He said they're pleasurable, but they're not nutritive. There's no nourishment ultimately in them. And so that's how the Buddha got into this eightfold path. He got to this point where he realized that there was a happiness beyond the sense doors. The last time, uh, <laughs> the last time Tundisro Bhikkhu was in town um, before COVID, and I went to see him at Friends of the Dharma, I had to ask him because I was really concerned. I asked him outright. I said, can you get enlightened and still be having sex? I was like, I'm a married person. I am not a monastic. Can you just be straight with me and tell me? And he said, yes. He says stream entry is available to householders and you don't have to be celibate. And the way he said it was so, so funny because he smiled and he paused and he said, yeah, yeah, I guess he is. Yes, yes. You And it, <laughs> So I felt relieved because I was like, okay, we can have sense pleasures. They're not all bad. We're householders. We have partners and mortgages and kids, and that's okay. We just need to acknowledge the dukkha. We need to acknowledge that these are not an end all and that they are limited and conditioned and fleeting. And the last thing I'm going to say tonight about this, and we'll continue this next week when we talk about a deeper level of this, is that... In American Buddhism, in American Buddhism, there has been a trend over my time in American Buddhism where more and more people describe the Dharma as a way of taking mindfulness and being aware of worldly sensations and using mindfulness to simply get a deeper experience of them, meaning you use meditation to simply get a deeper experience of the sense world, right? And that is a real challenge ultimately for Vipassana because our goal is to bring mindfulness to worldly sensations so we can see how they're rooted in dukkha. So we can trade up for higher sensations. The goal is not to just be mindful of the world and say, I'm going to make the best of it, or I'm just going to like manage the sensations, or I'm going to be aware that they're impermanent, but keep overstimulating myself. Like that really isn't what the Buddha was saying. What the Buddha was saying is bring mindfulness to your sensations so you can begin to see your clinging, your grasping, your craving. Begin to see how when Amazon sends you something, you click buy before you even think about it. Like be aware of that. That's the insight. Mindfulness is not designed just to heighten your sense of sensory pleasures. If you, if you just do that, it's a form of spiritual bypass. You're just continuing to roll in the suffering. So I'm noticing this more and more that we're talking less and less about this otherworldly and we're talking more and more in the, in the West about using mindfulness just to be at ease with the sensory world. And so there's a really big distinction there. And I wanted to read two more quotes to conclude that speak to this process. Let's see if I have it here. 
Ah, okay. Here's two quotes that speak to this. And I'll speak about this more next week and go into some detail. This is a quote from our dear friend Joseph Goldstein about this phenomenon. He says, As we continue exploring the teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the description of Vipassana, as we continue exploring the teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta, it is important to remember that the Buddha gave these teachings for the purpose of freeing the mind from suffering. He is talking about liberation, not about getting more comfortable in our lives or sorting out our personal histories. He is talking about liberation, not about simply getting more comfortable in our lives or sorting out our personal histories. Meditation can be used to sort out a bunch of stuff. I can vouch for this. I can vouch for this. So much childhood baggage left aside from Vipassana. So there's so much healing. And I have personally sorted out quite a bit with Vipassana. But there is a higher calling for what we're doing with this teaching. And to bring it up to that level of real spiritual practice, we have to remember about the otherworldly part about the liberation. So, worldly and unworldly sensations, worldly and unworldly feelings, a really important part of the path. And as you can see, we've got as humans, especially in contemporary times with all the stimulation, we have our work cut out for us, right? Because sensations, especially the pleasurable ones, are hugely fun <laughs> and entertaining ourselves is quite spectacular at times, right? We can have incredible experiences. But the question is, can we be courageous enough, disciplined enough, curious enough to bring mindfulness to this experience and find something greater, something wiser, something deeper, something transcendental in the experience? Can we see that we have another way of showing up in the world while still maintaining pleasure? We're not gonna hurt ourselves. We're not just going to give things up because we think they're bad or anything like that. We're not going to do the self-mortification, but we are going to try and acknowledge through our direct practice that there is some dukkha. And one last thing to say, the more you practice mindfulness, the clearer your mind is going to become. And as you practice continuously, moment to moment, month to month, year to year, what happens automatically is you begin to see that there is a layer of suffering underneath your sense experiences. You'll catch yourself grabbing at something because you're bored, not because you're really getting happy. You'll find yourself grabbing at entertainment or some form of sense stimulation and you'll catch yourself and realize, do I even really want this in this moment or is this just a habit? And you'll catch yourself more and more and those moments will be deeply satisfying. You'll have a great sense of wisdom when you catch yourself and you'll say, oh, that's what the Buddha saw. I'm seeing what the Buddha saw. I can see that in my grasping for sense pleasures, there is a dukkha underneath. And once that starts happening, there'll be a development of faith in your practice where you'll see that trading up is actually fun and nourishing and healing. And it won't be such a scary prospect as it is oftentimes for us as Westerners. I think that is all. We still got three minutes, so let's fall back into presence and recall our higher aspiration for a minute or two. Lots of energy, breathing bodies. Take a long, slow, deep breath in. Relax the body deeply on the exhale. Once again, coming together, Sharing our hearts, sharing our minds, coming in contact and community. We exist in the world, we enjoy our worldly pleasures, but we aspire 
to take refuge in something greater, something deeper, something blameless, something deeply rooted in love and joy and compassion, in liberation, in wakefulness. We come together for our own sensations, our own well-being, our own healing, always. First and foremost, we work on ourselves together in community, but we always remember our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free from suffering, for all beings to know true love, true kindness, and true happiness in this lifetime. And we aspire always to be free enough from worldly feelings so we can take refuge in the pleasures of generosity, the satiation of gratitude and compassion, and taking refuge in these otherworldly sensations allows us to show up in the world with bigger hearts, open minds, gentler dispositions. We show up in the world with wisdom and compassion. So every person we meet, every person that touches our heart, will be bettered by our practice. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. May all beings be free. May all beings be at ease. May all beings feel safe and secure loved and cared for. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you, my friends. A delight as always.